Well, good morning, everyone. Happy birthday, Mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for these uh, miracle tubes of the internet through which we can gather together. Thank you, God, for your lively word. Please bless us as we open it and sit under it together. Amen. So we're in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus is writing to these seven churches, addressing the culture of their cities and assessing their faith within that culture, and then making a promise to them that one of two things will happen depending on how they react to him. And in verse 13, Jesus says to Pergamum, church number three, I know where you dwell. Now, that can be a threatening remark, can it not? I know where you live. In the movie Layer Cake, a hitman called Dragon comes to kill Daniel Craig's character, and he calls him at night. And Craig says, Dragon, do you know where I live? And Dragon says, no. And so Craig says, well, get lost then, or words to that effect. It's a very violent movie. And he's emboldened, though, by the fact that he is in hiding. The hitman can't get him because he doesn't know where he lives. When Jesus says, I know where you live, it means there is no hiding. But Jesus does not come to kill. He's not a hitman. He comes to save. Death, in fact, is the default promise. It will happen to you unless and until you turn to him. Life is the alternative promise promise. And Jesus will give it to you, as we heard so clearly in that gospel reading. If we come to him, we turn to him, we feed on him. So in saying, I know where you live, Jesus is saying, I know everything. And he's also saying, I know what it's like there. I know what what you're going through. I know what your experience is like in the place where you are. Jesus lived in this world. He dwelt in this flesh. He is fully aware of what it is like to live where you are. And yet also, he is enthroned. He is the sovereign of the universe. He knows every facet of what everything is like. Even the things that we cannot see, Jesus knows about those things. That's what Revelation, this book, is all about. It is Jesus revealing to us, unveiling that which cannot be seen with our natural eyesight. Do you want to know what it is like living in your own city for real? Then you need to meet with Jesus and he will reveal it to you. Jesus says what he can see from his higher throne, from his position of authority. He says, you live where Satan's throne is. Later on in verse 13, he goes on to say, kind of a repetition, where Satan dwells. You live with and under Satan. Yet, verse 13, you hold fast my name. This is a compliment. The name of Jesus is essential to receiving the promise of life. It is, in fact, just the name of Jesus alone that rescues us from the default promise of death. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it's really impressive that they're holding fast this faith in his name because it's getting physical now where they live. Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed among you, he says. Witness, 
as Ben preached last week, is derived from the same root word as martyr. One of them was killed for their faith, and yet you did not deny my name, says Jesus. Well done, church. You are withstanding enormous pressure from Satan. There's, there's something actually about persecution that can drive a church into being more faithful, I have found. When someone points a gun at your head and says, do you believe in Christ? What you can't say is, well, kind of. Because they're going to say, well, I'm kind of going to pull the trigger then. I believe in Jesus Christ at Christmas and at Easter. Well, I'm going to kill you at Christmas or at Easter then. It doesn't work, does it? When your life is on the line and it's a yes or a no, then you've got to say a yes or a no. Forced into a yes or a no with their life on the line, Antipas has said yes. Now, we're seeing this very thing in China right now. Churches flattened, pastors dragged away, who knows where. Teenagers in the fields memorizing the entire New Testament. You know, we're patting ourselves on the back if we learn Tammy's song and we just learn the books in the right order. They've learned it. <laughs> because they know that a day is coming when it will be taken away, and so they want it up here. The latest tactic I read of this week in, in parts of rural China, it attacks the poorest of believers, and they say that unless they renounce their faith and take down their cross and put up a picture of some bloke, that their medical benefits and their food benefits will be taken away, and they will, they will surely die unless they give up their faith. It's the same old tactic. And yet what we see is that the church in China is growing more rapidly than the one in these United States. Isn't that funny? A yes or a no forces an answer. And when direct assault fails, when the gun to the head fails, and in fact actually seems to work against the gunman, Satan employs a different tactic. Verse 14. They're falling for it, and Jesus says this. But I have a few things against you. You know, you're doing so well with this direct assault, but when it comes to the sneaky stuff, not so well. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now, this is a little bit obscure to us, I suspect, but it was very well known to them, sort of a, one of the, the big old stories that they would know from Judaism. Uh, Balaam was an Old Testament bad guy who tried to attack the people of God directly, and he was prevented from doing that because they were under the sovereign protection of God. And so what Balaam did, not being able to put a gun to their head as he went around this, he went to one of Israel's enemies, to Balak, the king of Moab, and he said to this king, Look, if we could just seduce God's people away from their faith, if we could just draw them away with something else, then, then they would no longer be under that protection and we could undermine their faith that way instead. The church in Pergamum is doing well against direct assault and so Satan tries an indirect tactic of temptation instead. Now, I want you to listen up to this. This is important for those of us in the West, particularly in the United States, because we're not being directly persecuted for our faith yet. But you cannot assume from that that Satan has no interest in the American church. Just because we're not being dragged away and having our benefits stopped and, 
and uh, having our churches flattened. You can't just assume from that that Satan is disinterested in America. Maybe he's trying a different tactic. Maybe we've just not seen it yet. What lessons can we learn from history? It keeps on repeating itself, doesn't it? What can we learn from Balaam? What can we learn from Pergamum right now? Well, how did Balaam tempt the Israelites away? If we can get our heads around this, maybe we can see what's happening here. Two ways. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Let's define them, shall we? Idolatry is the idea of trusting in something else instead of or even just alongside God. And not just other gods, not literal carved idols. Anything at all that you put your faith in can function as an idol in your life. Sexual immorality, that is anything outside of a biblical Christian covenant marriage between a man and his wife. And it includes not just what we do, but what we look at and what we think, i.e. we all do it. And uh, I don't know how you're reacting to those definitions because I'm on the, the YouTubes and the Facebook right now, so I can't see you. But it's possible that you're thinking, well, that's not relevant to me. I don't do these things. I don't have a problem with these things today. Or maybe you're thinking, God doesn't have a problem with these things today. He's moved on. Maybe you're thinking, I'm a crank for even quoting this part of Scripture to you. Though, note, I did not write it. The thing is, it's the nature of seduction, isn't it? That you don't notice it happening. You don't see seduction seducing you. Otherwise, it wouldn't be very seductive, would it? <laughs> the missiologist Leslie Newbigin, who was working in India for many years, returned to the United Kingdom. And when he returned, he was shocked to notice things that his old friends did not see. It was a shock to him, but it was not to them because they'd just been steeping in this culture for so long. They'd been seduced. They were annoyed with him for pointing it out. Uh, when I met Kat, my wife, well, I didn't, she wasn't my wife when I met her, but I'm sure you can work that out. When I met Kat, my future wife, who I am now married to, let's not dig into that. We were doing a Bible study in a pub, and uh, it was a really good Bible study. We were having a few pints as we did the study, and we were really proud of what we were doing because the UK has a heavy drinking culture, and we'd grown up through that culture. And as we became Christians, converting in our early 20s, most of us had reduced the amount we were drinking by, by quite a considerable margin. And we felt relatively holy about this. You know, Bible study in a pub, just having a few pints. Cat, with fresh eyes, coming into the Bible study, particularly toward the end, said, yeah, but you're drunk. <laughs> you know, uh, we were like, yeah, but we're less drunk than we used to be. Yeah, because we'd grown up in that culture. And we were seduced. We didn't see it. That's the point, isn't it? That's the nature of seduction. You don't see it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be very seductive, would it? I'm guessing that we have all been seduced by something in some way. It's relative. It's slow. It's sneaky. Seduction is, is, is satanic. It is no different from the way it all began in the garden when we started this series, really. That's how seduction works. And so Jesus speaks to them in their context and says, let me reveal it to you. 
Let me show you something that you've not seen before. That's what revelation is from his throne, from his higher throne. Christ reveals to them what is going on in the city where they dwell because he knows where they dwell and he knows what it's like. Verse 15, so also, likewise, in the same way, exactly as that Balaam and Balak stuff went down, so also, just like Israel with Balaam, and you all know that story very well, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, it's the second time that we've come across this group in Revelation. We still don't really know who they are or what they were teaching, but we do know that in some way it worked like the same old story from the Old Testament. More seduction, I guess. More sneaky snakery. More idolatry. More immorality. Why does it work? Why does it actually work, this thing that's gone round before? Well, I think idolatry gives us a sense of security and control. Idolatry is, if you like, a backup God or a reserve. It's a what-if-God-fails kind of a faith. At least if I have the right savings, or I have the right contacts, or the right education, or I'm part of the right skill set and the right group, then, then I'll be okay. But idolatry has to keep up. And it's hard to keep up with idolatry. In fact, it's exhausting. Learning and earning all the time is difficult. And finding security for yourself is difficult. And then keeping hold of your security for yourself is difficult because there's always another class to do. There's always another product to acquire. There's always another skill to develop. There's always another investment to put your money into. There's always someone better than you coming up behind you in the firm, ready to take your idol from you. And it's never enough. Idolatry is just a hungry God. It is never enough. And so exhausted, we reason that what we deserve is a little break from all the idolatry. Maybe what we deserve and what we need is is something to keep us going. A, A treat, perhaps. Immorality is that treat. It makes us feel desirable. It's an escape from all of that work. Look at almost any advertisement for any idol that you care to name, and what is it that they use to sell that idol to you? Sex. It's the same two things. We stress, and then we escape, and then we get trapped in the escape, and we stress some more. Idolatry and immorality. A pattern, a macro pattern from the old covenant of Balaam and a new covenant, Pergamum, a micro pattern of idolatry and immorality that we know well from our own lives. Let's not pretend that somehow this happens to other people. It happens to all of us. And so God says, verse 16, one word, sermon, repent. It's like the record has been skipping over and over again in the same part of the same old track. And Christ grabs the needle and says, enough. We're done. Do you see what good news this is? Do you see what amazing news this word repent is? Like we're hearing that and we're like, (gasps) you know, that's terrifying. No, it's awesome. It's really good news. This word repent is amazing. All you need to do is turn. Once you see this stuff, that's all you need to do. Christ would never 
call you to repent if it didn't work. Christ would never say repent to you if he wasn't waiting right there. The minute you turn around with the arms of love open wide, the king of love standing there just ready to embrace you. He wouldn't, he's not going to say that just so he can wag the finger and say, ha, 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 got you. He's not a hit man. He's a savior. Come back, he says. There are negative promises if we do not turn to him. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Then the alternative promise if we do repent. To the one who conquers, I will, there's that promissory language, give some of the hidden manna, like the Israelites in the wilderness who ate literal bread of heaven in order to survive. God gives them food, gives us food as well to survive. In our New Testament gospel reading, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, feed on me and you will live. And then I will, another promise. The promises, the good promises, they keep rolling. Give him a white stone. Now remember Revelation does this. It, you know, it just mixes images and jumps from image to image. Once we get used to the genre, it's less shocking. But the image has certainly confused the scholars. I did my digging this week. I didn't know what a white stone was. I did my digging and I discovered that there are eight different scholastic ideas about what the white stone could be. Now, the bad news is I've not decided which one is correct, but the good news is they're all quite nice. So here we go. You pick some. In a jury trial, a white stone was used to prove that a person or declare that a person was not guilty. In commerce, white stones were used to calculate a fair price, like an abacus. In secular culture, a white stone was a symbol of having a good day. You know, we have a red letter day. They had a white stone day. In paganism, not endorsing it, just remarking upon it, a white stone was a, a charm or amulet that they wore around their neck. Stores used white stones as tickets to get in. Uh, I guess maybe if they had a pandemic going on and they were only allowed 10 in the store at once, they could take a white stone up or something. White stones were even used by priests during worship. And uh, perhaps the best use of the eight that I found, and there's probably nine or 10, I don't know that it was an exhaustive study, but my favorite one was that athletes, when they won a race, were given a white stone. And it wasn't a trophy. It was the entrance ticket to a victory feast in their honor. Those that held the white stone were allowed to come in and celebrate a win. You know, what, a, what a cool group of images this is. It's almost fun that we don't know which one it is that Christ has in mind, or maybe it's some of them or all of them. They're all good, aren't they? If I'm going to just pick some that are my favorites. I'm going to go with the first and the last, a verdict of innocence and a victory feast. They seem to fit the best with what Christ is saying here. And Jesus goes on to talk about those that win, to the one who conquers on that stone, on the victory stone, the stone that's been given to you, your winner's stone, your entrance stone, your not guilty stone, on your stone that you hold is written a new name, it's another layer here of the imagery because names 
you know, we know we're very important in that society. In their world, a name was often indicative of who you were, what you were like, maybe whose you were, to whom you belonged. So let me ask you a question. What names has Satan given to you? What names have you earned for yourself? What idols have you written on your stone? You pulled out your stone. What, what secret words have you written on that about yourself? Maybe it's a mix. But what's written on your stone? Only you can answer that question. Whatever it is. Oh, by the way, here's another trick of Satan. When, he, when Jesus reveals all of this stuff, Satan's whispering a kind of counter-narrative saying, well, look what Christ just said, so he can't love you now. You're immoral. <laughs> that, that isn't what Christ said. Christ said, repent. I love you. I'll give you life. But Satan's already whispering. What's he whispering? What's he written on your stone? I cannot answer that question, but you know. When you read this and your heart goes, you know, what is it that is written on your stone? Whatever it is that's written on your stone, you can have a new name from God himself. A new name, verse 17. And even better, no one knows what is written on your stone. No one knows those names. Especially the name that God gives except the one who receives it. Your name is a private matter between you and God. Like a, a pet name, like a, like a nickname, like I have for, for my wife and my children that, that I don't use in public. Because like, that's special, they're important to me. You know, what name is God giving you? And we don't know what's on someone else's stone. And the beauty of this is, it means we cannot judge them. We can't judge their idolatry. We can't judge their immorality or anything else about them for that matter. Maybe they're the kind of person that looks very good from the outside. Maybe they look like a holy person. Maybe it looks to us from our perspective as though they've got the best name possible written on them. You know, maybe they're practically like Jesus. But just because they look good to us doesn't give us the right to guess what's written on their stone. It's private. We are not God. We do not have a throne. We do not judge. We do not know where they live or how they live. Only God knows these things. And God has written a new name on your stone or wants to. If you have a new name on your stone, there's no pride. There's no boasting. It was a gift of grace. It was a promise of grace. Look where it came from. I will give, says Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, thank you that you give us a new name. And we might well react to these phrases and defend our idols and our immorality because we love them. We pray, Father, that as you reveal those things to us, Instead of defending them, we would surrender them. And Father God, thank you that in your sovereign grace, you choose to keep these things a private matter between us and you. So Father God, if, if one of the things written on our stone is the word judge, please enable us to repent. Please remove that name. Would we be named by you and for you? Thank you for that promise. Though we might well have a stone of death, you come to give us life. 
Amen.